You've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast, episode 43. Literary Alchemists, I'm Dave Robinson. And I'm Justin McCumber, filling in for that reckless breeder known as Brian Humphrey. <laughs> and you're listening to the Roundtable Podcast. Each week on the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come on the show and present a story idea for us and our esteemed guest host to rip apart and rebuild and hopefully make it better. Exactly. We we and in fact today what we're going to do is we're going to uh, uh, invoke our fairy godmother status and wave magic wands of literary goodness over the story, transforming it from from the 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 pumpkin of of raw nascent ideage into the radiant auric splendor of literary gold. I, I want to be the evil stepmother. Oh, you, <laughs> that's not going to be a far reach. You can do that. You're the I evil can. stepmother. You're you're officially cast, dude. Thank you, <laughs> Justin. First of all, not only thank you so very very much, but you've got some incredible mojo working out in the world right now already, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've got Haywire out right now. Um, it's selling okay as as well as you'd expect for a first time author with a you know a niche novel from smaller press but i'm really pleased with it the audiobook that veronica jaguer narrated for me just sounds she makes anything sound better than it has a right to sound and she i'm really pleased does. with that yep Ho- hopefully soon uh, a minor magic will be uh, coming out that our guest writer helped me actually come up w- I-, I did a little round table on her podcast and her and her folks were uh, kind enough to offer me some advice. And hopefully when it comes out, she'll read it and enjoy it. But right now, I'm using NaNoWriMo to finish off the sequel to uh, A Minor Magic. And this one's called uh, A Broken Magic. Right. And I had the distinct pleasure of helping workshop on that one on the Dead you Robot did. Society. We- you did indeed. Yeah, that was great fun. That was great fun. And yes, friends, uh, uh, Justin can be found out on the interwebs uh, at the dead, uh, deadrobotsociety.com. Uh, and also, he's a co-host on the Hollywood Outsider podcast. Yes. Uh, and we'll make sure links to both of those fabulous uh, uh, podcast events are in the liner notes. Very cool. Well, Justin, you know, dude, Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas to you. I hope Santa is generous and you don't just find a, a bunch of coal in your stocking. Well, I'll tell you, with the with the energy status, the way things are right now, I can turn coal <laughs> into gold, baby. So coal is not a bad thing either. But no, I will. I and I hope the same thing for you. I hope I hope splendid booty uh, uh, fills the underside of your Christmas tree, and that you and you got everything that you were a very good boy for. I I hope so too. But we recently bought a new house, and I think I'm living in. <laughs> <laughs> You're living in your Christmas present. Yes, I think so. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, and and speaking of awesome. That was not the most graceful segue, but what the hell? Let's roll with it. Uh, uh, do let's bring our our guest host uh, back to the big chair, ladies and gentlemen, uh, authoress of the award winning Enchanted YA fairy tale novel, book reviewer, animator of alphabets, princess goddess, force of nature. We are so very pleased to welcome back to the big overstuffed chair at the round table, Alethea Contis. Alethea, thank you so much for coming back and helping us workshop a delightful story today. 
Hello, my friends. Thank you for having me. Oh, yes, indeed. And and we will wish you a, a most festive and happy holidays as well. Thank you. Although I do travel in a bubble and not a sleigh. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> that floats through the air on pixie dust. Now, Alethea, do you have any, any uh, family traditions at the holiday season? Oh, my mother used to make moussaka every Christmas Eve, and I miss that so much. <laughs> what is that? It's a it's eggplant. a Greek almost like eggplant lasagna, if you will, oh. but it's so much better than that. <laughs> See, and their their friends is a lesson in multicultural diversity. While moussaka may not say Christmas to you, <laughs> it says Christmas to Alethea. That's awesome. So true. And when we were growing up, we used to do uh, we used to go over to our neighbor's house and have Fridays to pull boys and do and all the kids would do like a Christmas performance. Because that's just what we did. We were performers. You were. So. You've, you've got that theater vibe running deep. And, yeah. and oyster po' boys. Yeah, you were growing up in the South. <laughs> I can tell you, I when I was a kid, uh, uh, we, we'd we always go to our, our aunt and uncle's house. And they had this big room just off the stairs where the tree was and all the presents were. It was a big family gathering. There's like five of us kids. And... We, we weren't allowed to go downstairs. So all five kids are sitting there at the top of the stairs while the grown-ups look down and into the room that we can't see. And they're all going, ooh, wow, look at all this stuff. And we're like frothing and twitching at the top of the stairs going, oh, my God. And eventually somebody would throw the green flag and we were down and at it. So that, That's that, was, awesome. that was my memory of Christmas from my youth. Justin, do you got one? Memories of Christmas as a youth? Yeah. Oh, God. When I was a kid... It was all about Star Wars. Every Christmas, if I didn't get a Millennium Falcon or a Hoth playset, I was not happy. But yet, I always did. They, they, they knew what to get me. I was easy. Star Wars and Christmas, forever mm -hmm. interlocked in your consciousness. Yep. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Well, look, I, I realize that it is Christmas, but we were recording this well before. Um, uh, Alethea, you have much goodness out in the world, and I was wondering if you would share with our listeners uh, uh, some of the amazing stuff that's coming out from under the pen of Alethea Contis in the coming weeks and months. Um, okay, well, let's talk about what's out right now so I remember what's going on in my life. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. Uh, Our Right Now is Enchanted, the novel, as you mentioned, that won the Gillette Burgess Children's Book Award. Um, I also have The Wonderland Alphabet, which is a collaboration with artist Janet K. Lee. Um, it's a board book, but it's some adult verse. It's kind of like Edward Gorey with rainbows. That's marvelous. Uh, and that would be the, yeah. the Eisner Award winning Janet That's K. Right, Lee. That's right. The yes. Eisner Award winning Janet Lee. I'm so proud of her. That's awesome. Um, it's December now, so December, the Apex magazine right now has my story, Blood from Stone, Ooh. in it. That is a uh, not so much a retelling, but probably the, the origin story of Bluebeard or Fitcher, <laughs> as you know him if you are of the grim ilk. Um, and it's a story that I wrote for an anthology about serial killers that didn't make it in. So it's a young adult romance horror I didn't think I was ever going to find a home for this thing. <laughs> I was going to say that is so against the, the Aletheia Contest vibe. Aletheia Contest and serial killers is not to be used in the same sentence. Not so much, but but Fitcher is the quintessential fairy tale serial killer. I mean, there was no one else I could write about. It was just meant for me. So, yeah. And his, his real-life counterpart, Gilles Doré, very, very fascinating man. Intriguing. So, okay. Yes. So that's what I have right now. Um, 
coming up soon. Enchanted will be in paperback and Memorial Day. Hero, the sequel, will be out uh, next fall, the fall of 2013. Ooh. And at some point in 2013, Janet and I will be publishing Diary of a Mad Scientist Garden Gnome as an actual book. Oh, wow. Very so you nice. will be able to purchase that from us if you come see us at one of the many, many, many conventions that we attend um, and you'll just have to check my website to see what those are, because I'm not even sure <laughs> what those are going to be, but there's always a million of them. Sure. So. Now, will you be expanding on the, the Twitter constraints of the body text, or is it just going to be a pure translation? Uh, pure translation, pretty much. Just cool. as Excellent. it was, but able to be you know signed and personalized and owned by children everywhere. That's wonderful, and we will definitely hope that for, for every child to have that in their, in their collection of jewels. Very cool. Uh, what about conferences or conventions? Any of those in your future? Um, Dragon Con is, is definite every year, so you can look for me there. Um, there's one called Mysticon. It, actually, I have two called Mysticon next year. One is, in, <laughs> one is in February, at the end of February, in Roanoke. And one is in May in New Hampshire, and that's more of kind of a Harry Potter fandom sort of convention. So that's going to be fun. Outstanding. Very very, very fun. Very cool. Well, we will make sure that all of that awesomeness gets into the liner notes. And if any more wonders or gloriosity happens to manifest, Alethea, please get in touch with us and we'll make sure that gets tucked in there too because we want people to know where you are and how to, to find more of, of the sweet awesomeness that you infuse in the world. Very cool. Definitely. Thank you. Yeah. All right, friends, uh, what I'd like to do right now is pause just briefly to, to share some, some valuable podcast airtime with a cool ebook or Kickstarter project or, or another podcast that's bringing awesomeness to the airwaves. Uh, but when we come back, I'd like to workshop a story. Dear friends, don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. The voyage will be dangerous. It may involve fights with temple ships and it will almost certainly offend the sensibilities of the current administration of Major Major, as well as the priestess and her, um... What did you call them? Pet lizards. You had him at Dangerous. The Guild of the Cowrie Catchers, a novel of pirates and Panamandora. You made me sad, Gerard. Come back. Come back, and maybe I won't make so many things bleed. Written and narrated by Abigail Hilton. Book four, Out of the Ashes. A Grishnard, a Foxling, a Leopon, a Leon, an Ocelon, and you. A half-breed who acts more Grishnard than he looks and brought a plague upon his last allies. forbidden book. Wayne, for a smart person, you can be pretty stupid. I don't know anyone else like that. No one asked your opinion. A pirate prince. Polivar, what are you doing? An idea whose time has come. The Guild of the Cowrie Catchers. Find the story at cowriecatchers.com or subscribe in Podio Books, iTunes, or your favorite podcatcher. Silvio? Silvio?
Let's go change the world. All right, welcome back to the show. Now we enter the true meat that is the turducken of this show. I don't know if this would be the, the duck, the turkey, or, or which part of it, but this is why we're here, where we bring on a writer to discuss their work and hopefully help them make it better than it was when they brought it in. Um, I'm rather pleased to have on, you know, we all know that Dave is my illegitimate uh, podcasting son. That's right. Now my illegitimate podcasting daughter's here. <laughs> it's a family reunion. Oh, my God. It's so beautiful. <laughs> she I've been is. on her show, and it's now all full circle. Yes, and, and she, she really is the, the juicy duck inside the chicken, inside the turkey. Wow, of, there of are the, so many ways I could have taken see, that. See, exactly, and we're not going to go there because even though we're explicit, yeah. there are some lines we won't cross. Uh, yes, exactly. Our guest writer for this episode is an aspiring novelist who wrote her first story at the tender age of three. Uh, she's one of those Swiss Army knives of artistic mojo, uh, uh, including singing, leatherworking, costuming, and voice acting, and is the co-creator and mistress of ceremonies uh, of the Pen Dragon Variety Podcast, a roundtable discussion podcast for aspiring writers of genre fiction. Uh, she's also one of the writers on the Fit to Write Podcast, along with my wingman, Justin McCumber, and T. Morris. Uh, she's done voice acting for the Doonstief, Escape Pod, the Drabblecast, Journey Into, and the Guild of the Cowrie Catchers, and will be attending the New Media Expo event in Las Vegas this January as a speaker on the subject of voice acting for podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the writer's chair at the roundtable, Lauren Harris. Lauren it is never easy to bring your stories up and, and, and invite discussion and discourse about them. So thank you so much for offering a story for the roundtable. We appreciate it. Of course. You're very welcome. And I'm extremely excited. Well, so are we. And, and uh, you, you got to writing your first story at the age of three. That's that's kind of overachieving. I mean, that is that's wow. Where does that yeah. come from? Uh, well, you know, it was funny because recently um, one of my Pendragon co-hosts uh, had asked me about, told me as a writing prompt to rewrite my first story. And so I had to think back what that was. And it was a uh, a story about a Pegasus unicorn who rescued a, literally like a coal cart full of orphans from the Care Bears villain. And so I'm thinking <laughs> steampunk. <laughs> no, that's the Smurfs. That's 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 epic fantasy. I think it was no heart. I think I'm gonna redo wow. it as like steampunk and make the the unicorn or the Pegasus unicorn like an automaton or something. So you've been living in this in this world of storytelling and and genre tropes your entire conscious life. Yes, I think that when I dictated to my babysitter, she wrote it down and um, I illustrated it. And I'm pretty sure my parents kept it for a while. And when I re-looked at it again. It said something like, by Lauren Harris, P.S., she's a kid. <laughs> Just so you understand, this so you brilliant know. work was done by a three-year-old. Even then, she was marketing and promoting. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Lauren, you, you, uh, hopefully that's not the story you brought today. No. Oh, no. good, good, good. That but, one is, is kind of on the back burner. <laughs> well, let's... Needs, needs some development there. Well, let's let's work on the story that you did bring. And and uh, this is the part where you get to share that story with us. We're going to give you uh, five to eight minutes. Give us the title, the genre, 
the format, is it going to be a novel, a novella, a series of short stories, whatever, um, introduce us to the world if it's a unique world environment, uh, show us the characters, and then give us some key plot points that we can hang our hats on so we can dive in and workshop the gloriosity that is your story idea. Uh, the mic is all yours, ma'am. Excellent. So my story is entitled The Beggar's Twin, and it is high fantasy. It's either going to be two books or one ginormous Tad Williamsian tale. Um, I've got the first half basically figured out, though I haven't written it yet, so there's some room for movement. Mainly, it's the second half that's kind of fuzzy. Um, I have background, but no real events to get me from point uh, H-ish to point Z. Uh, the logline is... In a world where nobles live in a city above the streets and touching one means death, Procne, a street girl with forbidden magical gifts, vows to use her one chance at power to bring down the society that killed her brother and made her an outcast. The other major characters are Baek, the last spirit mage singer and a teacher at the Collegium, who is willing to face excommunication for teaching a woman to use magic if it is the only way to save an endangered branch. We also have Morbin, an opportunistic jade guard who plays a dangerous game of dual loyalties between the prince and a man known as the Mole King, which will either leave him rich or dead. And Dashin, Bayek's protege, a bastard of an Altavian nobleman who is brilliant but bored and simply waiting for a chance to escape the family and society that rejected him. Then we have our antagonists, my favorite part. The prince... The Machiavellian leader of the tiered city, Altavia, manipulates his courtiers by employing the most powerful mind-reading Esper magic singers to keep him aware of all the goings-on. And the Mole King, the mysterious leader of an underground resistance a decade in the making. No one is sure whether this man is truly working for the side of good or not. So those are the major characters. And the world is basically set up into a bunch of city-states that are ruled by princes, uh, sort, of like the sort of like in the cities in the Italian Renaissance. Uh, the city is divided, with nobles in the upper stories, and that upper area is called Altavia. And the commoners live in the streets below. No, there's really no commerce between the levels. Uh, no one goes between them except the Jade Guard, who are the magic-using police officers that use healing shields to sort of preserve their purity. They think that works because they're nobility. Anyway, um, so the magic system is based off of singing magic, and uh, women are not allowed to use magic because there is a belief they'll be barren if they do. Common men are given the choice between joining the castrated clergy or having their magic blocked. Not everyone has magic, but those with gifts do get uh, tested, or everyone is tested for those gifts at a certain time of year. Um, anyway, the point is the prince wants to keep magic out of the hands of the street level. So, on to the actual story events. When Procne was 15, she watched her twin brother burn for the crime of climbing into Altavia and touching a noble. Though she uses her forbidden gift of spirit magic to save the dying, she refuses to break the same laws he did until a noble lady drops her baby during a festival. Procne catches the child and publicly uses her magic to save his life. Then the Jade Guard arrests her, and she's sentenced to slavery at the Magic Singer Collegium in Altavia. Bayek, a master magic singer and our second POV, forces her to dress as a boy and teaches her magic by proxy of his apprentice, Dashin. 
Propney discovers that she is one of the two living people with spirit magic, and the other is Bayek himself. So Bayek's motivation for teaching her magic, though it could get him excommunicated because she's a woman, is preserving that branch of spirit magic. And Bayek tells Prockney that she has two souls, hers and her brother's, which she attached to herself when he burned to death. He convinces her to let go of her brother's soul, and she commits to learning magic so she can try to equalize the classes and make sure no one else dies for the same reason he did. Briefly after that, she meets Morbin, who is a friend of both Bayek and his apprentice, and she immediately hates him solely based on the fact that he's one of the Jade Guard. So, of course, you know they're sort of the love match in this. Anyway, um, his, <laughs> his impression of her is just as bad because he's exceedingly classist. Um, he's the fifth son of a noble family. Snobbery is about all he's going to inherit. So, Morbin is the third POV character. Um, he's a Jade Guard and opportunistic to a fault, um, and is accepting, at, at the very beginning of the story, uh, he's accepting bribes to look the other way from smugglers. He's then blackmailed by the underground to work for the Mole King, and realizes that they're planning a revolution. Ultimately, the prince's agents discover him and dangle him from a balcony, convincing him to become a double agent against the Mole King, or die. Clearly, he chooses to become a double agent. So the prince, uh, who holds a grudge against Bayek for marrying the woman he was interested in, uses the threat of his mind-reading magic to threaten Bayek to recommending his apprentice, Dawson, for a position in the prince's retinue. That causes problems for everyone, because they all have stuff to hide from the prince. <laughs> so Prockney, her secret is discovered by some of the students, and she's forced to steal a badge from the Jade Guard, which leads to her going to jail and calling on Morbin for help and revealing to him that Dashin uh, is going to work for the prince. This causes Morbin to try to convince Dashin not to work for the prince because he doesn't really want to end up potentially having to kill his friend if things go wrong. Before too long, the Mole King discovers Morbin's treachery and Morbin, in an attempt to save his own skin, tells the Mole King about Prockney and her potential asset as a, uh, to his revolution that he's planning. So while everyone else is busy navigating the prince and the mole king, Prockney becomes romantically involved with a rebellious alchemy student named Hyperion, who has connections with the underground and gives her hope that her goal of changing the system is achievable. But uh, when they're attacked by her classmate tormentors, Hyperion inadvertently knocks one of them from the Collegium ramparts and is killed. They're both arrested, and Prockney uh, and uh, Hyperion is not killed, the student is killed. And uh, they're right. both arrested, and Prockney re is revealed as a woman. And this, in turn, means Bayek is locked up for excommunication, and everybody is in the hot seat. So, after the Mole King's agents get that news, Morbin is released to help engineer a plan for Prockney's escape. With the help of Bayek's wife, Morbin helps to smuggle Dashin out of the prince's tower and springs Bayek from house arrest. He inserts himself as Prockney's guard and refuses to unblock her magic, lest she cause more trouble. Um, and it, she's forced to watch her lover executed. Then the members of the underground start a riot, during which Prockney, Bayek, and Bayek's apprentice are able to escape, with one of the Mole King's right-hand men joining them as a guide and to groom Prockney as a useful tool for the rebellion. This is the major turning point in the story. It's sort of the midpoint. If it's two books, it's the end of the first book. 
And this is where Procne goes from reaction to action because they've killed her brother and her boyfriend at this point, and she's kind of ready to torch the place. So it's from this point that I... I, I really kind of don't know where, what I'm doing. <laughs> they escape. They go back to the city via the underground. Procne and Morbin go from hate, hate to tolerate, hate to love, hate. There's a revolt. They win. Well, and hence that brings you to the round table, which is awesome. Indeed. Well done. Excellent, excellent story pitch. I think there's there's good food to work with. Um, so, Lauren, just to sum up, uh, uh, other than how does the story end, uh, uh, are there other elements or anything else that you're hoping to get out of this conversation? Whew, um, well, I've never built a revolution before. <laughs> okay. So looking for some, some great ideas there. And, and I don't know, I'm, I'm really flexible with this, with this second half of the story. I've kind of got the first half sort of nailed down. It is, it is also flexible. I can weave more things into it. Okay. Really, it's sort okay. of open season at this point. I, I cool. don't... Give me some presents. All right. Yeah, presents for Christmas, and that's exactly what we're going to give you. But before we do, uh, uh, we need to cover our ass. Uh, Justin, are you f- you're familiar with our, our disclaimer, are you not? Uh, I am indeed. Would you be so kind? Uh, anything said here could be and probably should be considered absolute bullshit. Yep, there it is. That's the even even from from Fair Alethea. Uh, uh, this is your story, Lauren. And while there will be brilliant, brilliant ideas flashing about like like meteors on a summer's night, uh, uh, keep in mind that this is very much your story, and these ideas are offered purely as a, a possibility to explore different facets of the story that you yourself may not have discovered. Cool. Excellent. All righty. Very good. It is our custom here at the round table to go once around the table to give initial impressions and ask some clarifying questions. And we always defer first to our guest host. Uh, so Alethea, what are your first impressions of Lauren's story idea? And do you have any questions of clarification to help qualify and, and gel in your mind the story that's being offered? Let me float down off my bubble. Here we go. <laughs> she descends. Yes. Um, okay, I was taking notes, so I am referring back to my notes here. Very, very well done in the summary, um, I have to say, because I thought I was going to have a really tough time following this. No pressure. But <laughs> I really didn't. And to be quite honest, I know you talked about making it either a giant book or a two-book series or whatever but i would actually based on the story you just told us encourage you to just write that as the one book and then because it sounds like what you're asking for is what i do to myself when i say okay what am i going to write in the sequel because i have this nebulous idea of what's going to happen next but but i'm not sure where i'm going to go and i don't know where i'm going to go until i actually write start writing it down so your question sounds more about what's going to happen in the sequel to this book. There you go. Does cool. that make sense? Fair mm-hmm. Okay. So any, any questions that will help uh, uh, crystallize the, the story being told in your mind, Alethea, or you pretty much got it? Um, no, I pretty much got it. Okay. I think it's pretty awesome. I, I it's think... a book I would read. There so. you go. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Justin, your first thoughts and any questions of clarification? Uh, well, it's definitely high fantasy, um, and as I've gotten older and my brain has begun to decay, uh, my ability to keep high numbers of characters 
in my head has <laughs> diminished a bit. So uh, I'm probably a little, even though I, I don't know if I'm, I think I'm younger than Dave, but somehow his brain is much more p- pickled or preserved <laughs> perhaps than mine. Um, so one of the things I like to do in these sorts of stories is to start defining and understanding some of the parameters of the things I'm dealing with. And with fantasy, magic is one of those things that can, it is very fun to use, but it can quickly become um, uh, either unwieldy or the answer to everything. So I like to put a lot of limits on magic and, and figure out ways that it doesn't become just the answer to all of my woes. The Very one character thing. that you mentioned, though, that really made me think, oh, this one could be a problem, is your prince and his, his mind-reading magic. What are the limits of your magic system, and specifically with his ability to read minds? What are the upsides to it, and what are the, the downsides? Because I firmly believe magic should have a cost. Right. So uh, the prince himself actually cannot use magic. He does not have the aptitude. Um, so he actually employs a retinue, uh, one of each, there are six different types of magic, uh, or cardinal magics, in this system. And one of the limitations is that it is song-based. So uh, each different type of magic resonates with a certain key. And so the actual training that happens at the Collegium is, is very involved. And so you actually have to be able to sing on that pitch, uh, very well and use the correct keys in order to make the desired effect. And um, so certain people, uh, let's let's take the the prince's esper sort of mind ready kind of guy. Uh, for example, if he were a certain type of person that had his soul sort of resonates with the correct key for that mind magic, he will find using it much much easier. However, if his soul is dissonant. Uh, it will be much more difficult for him. So it, the parameters are not only based on your, uh, based on just your what you're basically born with in the resonance of your soul toward the particular key you have aptitude for, uh, but it also depends on how well you can actually sing. Um, there is a character who is tone deaf and an alchemist, and that never ends well. I, I love the the idea or the words. Resonance and dissonance. Yes, I would love it if you yes. could somehow work that into a title, because um, th- those words have a a certain taste on the tongue and to the eye, and working that somehow into your title or pitch works great. And I I I find that simple titles really appeal to me, and so resonance and dissonance. Ooh, I just yeah. I love the sound of that. That's the titles for your I, two books right there. I know. There you I, go. I, I like that and I've been kind of looking for something different than the beggar's twin because that was the title for the short story that started this whole uh, idea. I like that. I like that, Justin. So very I like much. that, and I will definitely am yeah. starring that in my notes right now. <laughs> Thanks, Daddy. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Any other uh, questions or, or clarifications? Can I can I ask what the six magics are? Sure. Um, I actually had to draw a chart for this. Yeah. So, so six magics are healing. Um, and then we have alchemy, which is the transformation of different elements into something. We have elemental, which is what exactly what you think it is. It's Avatar. Um, Avatar, the last airbender type stuff. Right. 
Um, we have the spirit magic, which is what Procne and Baic have aptitude for. And that is the magic that allows the manipulation between um, spirit, body, and soul. Spirit is sort of the glue that holds the soul to its vessel. Um, and with resonance, there's something cool that, uh, that those singers can do, that the spirit magic singers can do. Um, and the, we have Esper, who are the sort of mind magic people. They are so, some sort of empaths, sort of, uh, mind readers. They're not actually mind readers, but they get immediate, um, feelings off people. And then we have divination. Divination is not seeing the future, it is seeing the past. So the divination people, that is, that is Baic's strongest magic. I do, have a, I do have a quick idea, and it just came to me. Bam. You said that people who can sing in that key well have a resonance. Those who can't sing well in it have a dissonance that makes, them, makes it harder for them to perform that magic. What, say that, is, that is one of my ideas. Go ahead. What if dissonance is almost destructive form of that magic? If you are dissonant in healing then instead of healing someone, you would actually cause them harm. If you were dissonant in spirit magic, you could actually attack someone's soul. Just huh. an idea, just throwing it out there. Interesting, take it nice. It. Put it but out I, there. I've always liked the notion of you know, matter and antimatter, magic and anti, sure. or you know, opposing schools of the same magic. One yeah. good, one bad, and one... One forbidden, one endorsed. Exactly, one constructive, one destructive. Sure. And, just and, an idea. And, I do that. Um, I I have it set up a little bit differently, but uh, and that might cause plotty, plotty problems. But I am we put that it out there. It's yeah. a cool concept that I may be able to run with. Yeah, and and riffing on that, Justin, it could also it may, maybe it's not the antithesis instead of healing you're harming, but it could just be uh, uh, somebody who by their very existence is is a dampener for that kind of magic which means those people would not be welcome they would be shunned and outcast by the the magic using community which you know makes them valuable to those that don't want magic in their lives you bring these dissonant people together and they can thwart the magic and balance the scales true i mean kind of like the yelsamari for the force you bring them too close and it destroys your ability to to use it so maybe those people are disruptive to the yeah. magical energies that well yeah. that's yeah that's another possibility, another possibility. That is kind of a little bit closer to what i've actually got set out um okay. but i had actually likened to them to the isalamari and i uh, i do like that because i am also a star wars geek <laughs> geeks, geeks and nerds all around Yay! um for myself uh lauren uh lush delicious many flavors and and i just and i specifically i especially like your your notion of, of resonance and dissonance because one of the things that i'm always looking for is a strong thematic through line uh, in, in the stories. And Lauren, whether you're aware of it or not, you've created some wonderful resonant and dissonant relationships. Uh, resonance in the form of Procne's brother, his spirit being bound to her and that resonance that they had. Um, the dissonance between the nobles and the common folks separated physically and spiritually and, and societally with, with uh, the geography of, of the city-state itself. Um, there's just there's a lot of rich food there to consider. Um, my God, you make me sound like a genius. <laughs> well, you are, absolutely. See, and that's Isn't part, he good? That's my job. <laughs> um, 
come on this podcast for an ego boost. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here to empower. Um, One question I have is the mole king. Um, the, the, the prince, the prince I'm concerned about just because he seems kind of flat and two dimensional. Uh, I'm here, I'm badass. I have power. I'm crushing you. And, and that's, I, I I see what that is, but it also, there's, there's a, there's a whiff of boredom already with him. Uh, I'd like to see if we can give him some mojo. Um, but the mole king enigmatic character that he is has definitely caught my attention. So what is the mole king's true objective? Okay, uh, the Mole King's name is Felix Chandler, and he was a candle maker uh, from a candle maker's family in the common streets. And uh, about 10 years ago, there was a big, uh, terrible plague that caused the entirety of the common streets to be shut out from Altavia completely. They didn't have any access to medicines or anything like that. And so he, he created this sort of underground movement to try to smuggle in uh, medicines, and that spiraled out into this great uh, idea that, hey, you know, it kind of sucks for us down here and we are being completely castrated as far as power goes and people started looking to him uh, for for help as a leader. And uh, so he went further and further underground and uh, actually caught that that sickness, but lived but became blind. So hence the title The Mole King. He not only lives in the underground areas below the city, but he also is, in fact, actually blind. What is his end game? His what does end, he want? His end game is to equalize the city-states. Um, his end game is actually the same as Procne's, um, and that is to equalize the classes and their access to uh, to goods and trade and um, and their... To, to walk on the same level, for everyone to walk on the same level, literally. How does that make him an antagonist to Procne, who I assume is your primary POV? She is my primary POV. Okay, so she's your protagonist. How is how is the Mole King an antagonist thwarting Procne from her objectives? Uh, at first, he, he really is not an antagonist toward Procne. Procne's major antagonist is the prince. Um, however, he does complicate things uh by his his methods are not necessarily the best and anyone who does end up knowing about the mole king and the underground uh is subject to his assassins if they were to get a little too loose of lip okay All and right. and he also is in the position to either make or break the the society and the reason he is basically waiting is because he does not believe in anarchy and uh, is afraid that were the prince to actually die right now, like Procne kind of wants him to do. We'll revisit that. Yeah. One last quick question, then I'll turn it back over to Alethea. Um, What does Procne want at the beginning of the story? What is her objective, her core desire? At the beginning of the story, uh, Procne is sort of, she's repressing grief she really just wants to get by in her life and and become established in and of herself as a, a solvent person. She's relying on a lot of people and relying on this illegal magic that she uses as a woman. And, she, and uh, she would prefer to be solvent and have a, a way to make a living. And That uh, doesn't involve magic? Well... Well, no, that doesn't involve magic because she uh, her magic is illegal and she eventually will... 
and knows that. So what's what what is it that she wants to be solvent in? What is her craft? What is her skill that she wants to to turn into a revenue stream? She loves singing. She uh, she would. So like she wants to be a bard or or a, a, a performer of some kind. To be some sort of of performer or healer or um, she's currently studying under a, a an herbalist uh, who is you know using her other skills and peddling okay. out skills. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Very good. Okay, cool. I had, there's more to discuss, but, uh, uh, I want to turn it back over. So Alethea, um, um, looking in the context of the first, the first book, uh, which is basically what, what Lauren brought out. What, uh, are there any, any, uh, plot problems that you see, or is there, is there an idea that occurred to you in this initial discussion that maybe Lauren could explore? We can do what ifs. We have all kinds of wonderful stuff. What do you got? Um, I'd actually like to start with, uh, if we could go back to why the women are forbidden to do magic. I mean, I, I understand that they will become barren, but they could just say, okay, fine, I'll become barren. Right. Uh, it is a, that, it's a very patriarchal society. So uh, it's, it's mostly just a control thing that was written off as a, they will become barren. Really, that's not even scientifically proven. They haven't proven that. It's just, it's it's woven in through the religion, through the patriarchal society, and this uh, this idea of the religion, and it is kept uh, kept as part of the church as heresy for a woman to use magic. I I'm just gonna throw out this idea because you seem to already have your characters pretty you know set in stone, but. Um, if you're throwing everything against also this patriarchal society, um, it would be really cool if like the mole king was a woman. Ooh. And this whole idea of women's empowerment is more than just Procne getting what she wants. Which is why the mole king needs to stay in hiding because in, in a patriarchal dominated society, the woman would not be, be taken seriously necessarily. Because there, it seems to me that there, other than just the revolution against the prince, is also going to be this revolution against. Because somehow the women have dealt with this. I mean, in Victorian society, when they were very repressed, you know, the the women had their own ways of of having power and controlling their husbands and every other, you know, women haven't just been sitting around going la di da. I'm going to drink tea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're there and they're plotting things because women seriously we plot <laughs> no <laughs> and you heard it here on the roundtable podcast friends there it is we cover it in fairy dust but dude we're plotting <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome i like that what do you think lauren um that's that's a cool idea it maybe would pro pose one problem but i might be able to get around well that. And, and it doesn't even have to be the mole king but i'm just thinking some sort of strong female character They're, that's right, not right. procne that's going to come out of this and perhaps even she could be woven into the the prince's because i also have some questions about the prince's motivation like dave said he's a bit black and white right now uh, there are two strong female characters the mole king's second in command which is actually his sister Okay. Um, and the uh, and the and Bayek's wife, who is a very very powerful, uh, famous singing entertainer, and uh, she's a very strong force of nature as well. Um, but I, I may be able to sort of, in my head, shift the Mole King's sister into a much more powerful role. I'd like well, to see that. Yeah. Oh. Well, an earlier offline, Alethea mentioned that she was rereading The Wizard of Oz. I think it would be interesting if the mole king 
actually being a woman, perhaps used her husband as the face of the rebellion, but she Uh was the actual mind behind it, the actual power. And so that whole idea of the, you know, the great and powerful Oz having this face, but don't look behind the curtain because it's actually someone else. So I like that idea, but I did want to ask if you want to use the Mole King as uh, an antagonist, I would say that one way to do it is even if the Mole King and uh, your main uh, protagonist have the same desire, some people are willing to go to much greater, harsher lengths to achieve it than others. And it's easy to make someone who wants the same thing you do a villain if they're willing to kill or if they're willing to cause mass destruction to achieve that aim. And something that struck me when you were talking about your society, that all of the nobles live high while your commoners live at street level. I kind of envision this as almost like buildings or structures. Is that the case? Okay. The trouble with that, and, and not troubled with you and your story, but the trouble for the nobles is that when you're living on high, the people below you can cut your legs out from under you if they realize it. The people on top are resting safe, or they're resting on the people beneath them, but that's your base. If that base is cut out from under you, it can cause you a lot of trouble. If you're a mole king and you're actually willing to bring a building down or two buildings down, that's a true threat. And someone who can actually take your base out from under you can topple you just as quickly as they could anything. And then the people at street level, now they can rise up because they've been down here the whole time. So that's kind of, that was where my mind was going with the whole, why would the, how could the mulking be a villain, but how could they be also a real threat to the aristocracy? That's fabulous. Now, I do, I do like that. Go ahead. Lauren, what was the, what was the event where Hyperion uh, pushes somebody off the parapet? Wasn't there a fire involved there? I'm sorry. I kind of blanked out at that point. Um, there was not a fire exactly, except he is an alchemist and, and did sort of explode something in the guy's face. Um, and he fell off. Uh, fire is one of the big threats and one of the ideas I was tossing around for a potential disaster. Um, but the, the Mole King is an antagonist more for, uh, the, the noble POV characters like Morbin. Um, oh, we can we can we can expand we can, on that. We can expand on that. Taking taking what Justin said and making making the Mole King more of an antagonist. I think that's an excellent idea. Um, and one of the things that occurred to me is if the Mole King is looking to uh, equalize things, uh, there is one thing that the nobles have that the commoners don't that gives them supreme power in all ways, and that's magic. Yes. What if the Mole King is about eradicating magic? And if we go with the notion of these dissonant people that are actually blocking magic with their with their own unique existence, you know, uh, uh, if the Mole King's goal is to eliminate, eradicate the practitioners of magic and ensure it doesn't return, then even though, and it creates this delicious conflict because Procne and the Mole King want equality, but the Mole King sees it as we need to destroy magic, which puts them at direct opposite odds and puts Procne in his crosshairs. Right. Uh, that kind of destroys Morbin being able to get out of his situation and rescue Procne. And, Why? uh, because the entire reason that Mo- that the Mole King is letting Morbin go is because he can bring him Procne as an asset to their uh, to their entire um, as as the soul. Well, magic sure, yeah, bring her in because hey, she's the last practitioner of spirit magic. 
Once we whack Baic, if we've got the last practitioner, we can kill her, and there's a whole line of magic. Poof, gone. Right. I think... I, I, no problem. I think yep. he's uh, like, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to think put, about that. Think about it. Yeah. <laughs> the, part of the, what we do at the round table is break things. Uh, <laughs> so things will be broken and you can Breaking. consider them, ponder them, think about them. Uh, Alethea, uh, other thoughts or considerations? Um, back when we, I was equating the prince to um, Darkheart in the Care Bears. Um, <laughs> on something that Lauren can understand. <laughs> uh, see? Yes. Um, There's an equation. When you're you're thinking about your revolution, because, you know, you said you haven't plotted a revolution, uh, but many people in history have. So you get to cheat and retell those fairy tales in a way, um, because there's all these wonderful revolutions in history that have happened. But why I'm questioning the motivation, if you will, of our, our evil prince is, like, pick your revolution in history. You know, who does the prince most, who is he most like? And then your revolution can almost be based off that. See what I'm saying? Right. So pick a revolution kind of and pick yeah. the antagonist <laughs> from that revolution. It's sort of, right. Yeah, exactly. And that, the French that revolution bring more life also into your, into your prince. Because is, is it a let them eat cake kind of situation? Or is it a Hitler kind of situation? Um you know, yeah. that's very much going to depend on your bad guy. You know, the American right. Revolution. I mean, you've, you've got all of that. And plus, you know, we've got Les Mis out there. So you can totally uh, uh, dig into, into that mindset and that mentality. That's a good point, Alethea. I like that. Justin, what else you got, sir? Well, you know, I'm, I liked when you said the American Revolution is, is a model. Because I, I had just started thinking about that. And, you know, the whole one of the reasons that we revolted was because of taxation without representation and we felt like the you know the the distant homeland was asking too much of you know this colony and so we decided to stand up for ourselves you know what if your prince was someone who has taxed the people in the streets to a point that they can't um stand it anymore or what if people who are born with an affinity for magic but they're commoners what if they're taken? I mean, if it's a crime to be born with magic, or if you're born with it and you're not noble, then you're you're just snatched from wherever it is you're born, it's taken from your family, and brought up into the higher levels to now be almost slave labor in a, a kind of controlled magical circumstance. Maybe their vocal cords are cut, or you know, there's this whole <clears throat> subclass of mutes who can't sing because the aristocracy could not allow um, people in the, on the streets to have access. And there's lots of reasons why people would revolt, um, but I think that both taxing and perhaps cutting cords or just taking people in uh, when they're born is a fantastic and easy to understand reason for people to want to revolt. Yeah. So like you're saying, rather than giving them the choice, they just are taken Right, don't it's, get there is no choice. choice. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that could have even been something like that. The prince decided to do uh, when he took power from his father. Decided, hey, the giving them a choice is not enough control. Absolutely. Um, well, and you know, what what, what, what about this? What about this? What if? <laughs> what if um, during the prince's father's reign, uh, there was this rebellion already that came up. 
uh, the people rose up. There was magic in the common streets. Things were a little less polarized. There was more Congress between the noble and 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 common sections. Uh, uh, but the 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 prince of the time was uh, uh, somewhat tyrannical and and required, as Justin was saying, that that those heavy taxes, those those harsh demands based on the virtue of their nobility alone. And there was a rebellion, and it was squashed. But in the process of the rebellion, uh, the prince's father was slain by rebels. A rebel mage. A a rebel mage, yes, excellent. And this current polarization and lockdown is the aftermath of that event. And people, I mean, the people are, are on the verge of being crushed out of existence because of the prince's love and respect and admiration for his father and, and the anger that he cannot release uh, uh, to, from, from, from his loss. Now, now, what if the Mole King's rebellion is being funded and supported by the prince? Whoa. What if the prince <laughs> wants the people to rise up one more time so he can crush them utterly and turn them into slaves? Mm. There's a reveal at the end of book one. Crazy. So, dun, so, dun, dun. Yes. so now Procne. So, sorry, I'm having a moment. I need to absorb this. <laughs> <laughs> So, so now we have this wonderful subterfuge, this, these, these dissonances, if you will, uh, uh, that seem to go against the prince's desire. You know, every, you know the fact that he lets Morden go, Morbin go to be a double agent, no worries, no problem. That makes perfect sense. He, he just wants to make sure there's somebody else feeding. The, maybe he doesn't even tell him to be a, a double agent. He just tells him, be good, and sets uh, uh, his, his Esper mind reader to mark him so that she can follow him and use him as an unwitting pawn to, to stay abreast of the Mole King's processes, blah, blah, blah. Um, one, one side note about the prince right. uh, that occurs to me. Um, the prince has no magical power. Um, he's obviously distrustful of all his people because he sets his espers to mind read on all of them. And yet the prince has somebody right next to him who can rifle through his brain at will. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to make sense. Unless you have a way to block them. Exactly. He's like Magneto with his hat. Well, and something <clears throat> like that, I think, Alethea. Right. Or or maybe maybe he keeps a dissonant character Close, you know. Again, if if we go with the dissonant uh, people that can actually disrupt a certain type of magic, maybe there is a dissonant esper that is his, you know, his 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 the piss boy. He's uh, somebody. That no, keeps no, him. no. Go, go, it's go. A what do you dissonant who's like a bodyguard that is one of the finest bladesmen. Perfect in the kingdom, and the reason he can fight off anyone is because he cancels out magic. Nice. Nice. Now, I, I like that because dissonance, um, the way I had it set out was not that you would like couldn't you that you used like an evil branch of the magic, but that that magic didn't really affect you as much um, right. because your soul was dissonant to it. So I kind of I like that idea of either him being dissonant or having like this badass bodyguard swordsman guy yeah. that is dissonant and just kind of stands there and is like, what have you? Ha! Well, and there you have the blind loyalty of somebody who, even in the face of reason, 
uh, and his ability to, to literally stand on his own and, and thwart this magic chooses of his own free will to align himself to, you know, the, the antagonist, the, the force that is crushing the spirit of the people. Uh, that's a character that has a lot of, of, of rich possibility and, and something right. along those lines. So. Here's your Darth Maul. Yeah, right. really. He'd, he'd be gr- he'd be great at being loyal if he were like a street kid peasant that was just really good with swords and happened to be dissonant. They find him and then raise him up into the prince's tower and give him all sorts of riches and great stuff. And he's like, dude, this guy's awesome. Right, right, absolutely, like absolutely, it. and 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 possibly a reversal on down the road uh, when ultimately the prince does something that even this blindly loyal character, uh, cannot conscience and he needs to make a choice. I mean, that those, those crises of, of faith, I think are, are delicious and wonderful things in any story. And the more opportunities you have to, to confront your characters with them, the better. Right. He also makes a great foil for the, uh, the mole King's assassin, and um, this this whole idea of having the prince like secretly funding the revolution, I really like that because that gives me a way to turn uh, the mole king from an antagonist into a an ally, which is kind of what I want. So that is like a good moment where if the if the mole king doesn't know about it and it's revealed perhaps by Morbin. Um, then at, that's like a great moment. Yeah, there. after the rebellion is set up. And that was the other thing I right. had. That at the end, you have Morbin going around and freeing everybody. Um, what if instead the rebellion starts and in the chaos and anarchy, everyone else is given a little bit of agency and frees themselves? Right. Um, I kind of like that a yeah. little better just to give your, your, your POV characters uh, uh, something to do. Right, and uh, and I kind of didn't like Morbin springing everybody because he's very self-serving. Yeah, I was looking yeah. for a way to make it more yeah. like opportunistic <laughs> looking because yeah. Morbin does. Morbin is Han Solo. He does what's good for Morbin. <laughs> well, and there you go. So so you know, start just start the the clock of the of the rebellion that much earlier. Um, like it, uh, Alethea, and any other thoughts? I know we're we're winding close to our wrap up time, uh, but uh, is there anything else that's that's simmering there that you wanted to touch on? No, I'm really digging this this uh, prince funding the rebellion thing. I, I hope <laughs> yeah. that Lauren goes with that because that's going to be a nice nice twist. That's got. I, mojo. I, I will, and I think that actually works with something else that I had been tossing around in my head. For cool. the second half, so <laughs> yay! Rubbing That's hands awesome. evilly, awesome. Uh, uh, Justin, what about you? Uh, uh, other other thoughts or expansions on on what we're talking about? Well, I just sent Lauren a message, but I was saying that if she's going to go with this dissonant assassin, I think making him a throat slitter would be a really great idea. Somebody who works from the shadows, yeah. because the best way to forever silence magic slit that throat. And so having that be like a signature of his, and maybe that's what people whisper about him Ooh, behind yeah. his back, I, I think is, is a, would be a, a cool way to go. That's awesome. Uh, right. Like My that. head is now spinning going, mm, maybe he's a doctor. Yeah. Knows exactly how to do it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Creepy doctor. Creepy, creepy, creepy doctor, creepy. dude. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, okay. I'm now all a flutter and a spin. Good. Uh, one last thing I wanted to throw out there: um, Hyperion, the 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 distracting love toy. Yes. Um, do we really need him? Uh, I mean, I guess we don't have to have him. He seems um, he I, seems tacked on. He seems almost a contrivance. Okay. Uh, and and I just want to I I just put that out there as 
if if you can do without him and 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 have uh, Prockney and and Morbin and Bayek be that that trinity of focus and what was the other one? Dashin. Dashin. Yeah. Dashin. Have them focus on there. I I think maybe you might be better served because then you're you're giving precious page time screen time to the real important characters right. uh, uh and and hyperion just seems kind of like a toss off i just wanted to put okay. that out there so <laughs> no, that's that's definitely fair cuz uh, i guess he kind of he kind of is <laughs> yeah 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 i mean that's that's a fair point and i can probably think of a much cooler way or maybe just have prop me accidentally act knock someone off the tower so sure. hey, there we go um and one other small thought that occurred to me uh when Procne is 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 captured for for healing a child in public and and she's she's taken uh, uh slavery at the collegian uh uh doesn't have quite the oh my god i'm doomed because it's like really slavery at a college that actually sounds kind of cool um <laughs> right you know, she uh Free education. Exactly. You know, I mean, holy crap. Go ahead. There, it, it is way more complicated than that, but okay. go ahead. And- but just the thought of, of you're going to be working in the poisonous salt mines uh, and, and anybody <clears throat> that's taken into the poisonous salt mines is scanned by Bayek uh, before they're, they're allocated uh, just to make sure that their ma- magic is silenced and their throat is their discord. Their, their vocal cords are maimed before they go in and Bayek scanning her can actually intervene and save her, which gives Bayek some agency and some active engagement and already taking a risk early in the story on Procne's behalf and pulls her out of that and, and has her transferred just to, just to engage and make Procne uh, 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 beholden to Bayek early on and give him more of a protag feel. Does that make sense? That's very similar to what actually happened. Okay, very cool. All right, then never mind. All right, well, we... No, we that's, that, that's great. It's, it's good reinforcement there. And cool. gives me an idea of how a different way to potentially do it. Okay. Well, I do have one other Yeah, thing. go ahead, Justin. And it just occurred to me. Earlier, you were talking about how Procne's brother, mm-hmm. his soul, went into her at his death. And then later on, Brennan tries to convince her that she needs to release it or give it up. I don't I don't know if I would want to go that way. I think that in order for a young magic user such as herself to be able to overcome greater magics than her own, and you would have to assume that the prince would have access to much greater magic than what she can bring to the table, she needs to have something that can supercharge her magic or give her an edge. The idea of two souls in one body, both of them resonant in the same magic. Good point. Could be a way to do that to to amplify yeah. her own magical ability, but at the cost of maybe his soul. Yeah. yeah. And then right. that throws a conflict. <clears throat> do I release him? I mean, do I use his magic at the cost of him being forever gone? Or do I not at the potential cost of my own life? and this rebellion and if he were to somehow be able to communicate to her well sure let, like like at the activation of her power you know under Bayek's tutelage as she as he, as he teaches her you know maybe a, a switch is thrown and like you say justin they can talk to each other and perhaps she can actually, a very yeah. limited communication but him tell her use me 
let me do this for you. Let me have this one final act that I can do for you. Or let me oh have my, God, my vengeance. Let you. me have my vengeance. You know, right. have him be an angry spirit and let Procne make take uh, the higher road. I, I would rather go the, the, the nice route because I think that would elicit more tears and an angry call to power more as a, I love you, let me do this for you. Right. And then she, she does it, knowing what it's gonna, what's going to happen. Uh, that's one thing that kind of struck me. That's what were you going to say, Alethea? Oh, I was just, I was agreeing with the more benevolent rather than angry spirit. And, and that's, and that's, you know, and that's the beauty of the round table. Cause, cause if it's an, and I, I, I agree with what both of you are saying. That makes perfect sense. I just, from, from my aesthetic is all You're I'm just saying. A, a dark malevolent. I'm a dark malevolent spirit. <laughs> um, no, having, having, having her love of her brother, which is, you know, the goad for her largely throughout this story. Uh, 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 you know, have him being rage and have him being vengeance. I mean, that is, if anything, that is so dissonant to life in general and allowing your protagonist then, even in the face of being told by her brother, no, kill him, destroy him, having her, getting her to a point where she can actually say, no, I love you, but I cannot let the same rage that destroyed you rule me. And And maybe... Maybe try and weave the word harmony into it somehow. Yeah, some kind of some kind of harmonic resonance yeah. or something. I, I think I think both ways have have much food and much merit. I'm not saying that 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 either way is preferable. I think I think Lauren, you you'd have cool stuff either side. Good stuff, guys. Holy crap. Love um, it. We're winding down to our, our closing uh, moments here. So I want to take one last turn around the table uh, uh, and impart unto Lauren any last thoughts or considerations, uh, some words of wisdom and some encouragement to send her off so she can go and write this awesome story so we all can read it. Um, Alethea, we will start with you, madam. Would you be so kind? Any, any final thoughts or words of wisdom for Lauren as we send her off? Um. Final thoughts is if you're thinking about Procne's brother, do consider um, what the spirit does after death in your world. Ooh, good point. And and the merits of that. Other than that, honey, you got a fantastic world. Go for it. <laughs> Just go for it. This is so much fun. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Justin, what about you, sir? Uh, I like the whole idea of singing magic. I like the idea of sound itself being an, an act of the magic. Uh, I would suggest to maybe look into things that could um, work well with that. Maybe things that the magic users keep on them to assist them. Maybe quartz, which we you know are is commonly used uh, because of its vibration. Tuning forks, Ooh, different things like that that can have amplify. Yeah. Animals. Anything that can amplify or modify their magic. I mean, hell, maybe even a, an instrument or something. But there is a lot of things you could, if you wanted to, bring into it to really flesh that whole thing out. So um, I'd say look into that a little bit. But I, I, I do love that idea. And I think you've got a, a real winner here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will, I will totally awesome. echo and affirm what everyone has said. Um, Lauren, have you ever read the Crystal Singer series by Anne McCaffrey? I have read the first one and okay. um, I really liked it. I really okay. liked it. Good, that. good. Because yeah. there's, there's, there's definitely some overlap there in terms of tone and singing and voice uh, uh, being applied, uh, in that case, in a science fiction way, but still vaguely magical, something to maybe revisit at some point. 
Um, yes, this is this is lush and rich. And, and honestly, Lauren, there's so much going on here. We didn't have a time to talk on on so many things. I think the notion of of having her brother's spirit bound to him uh, got short shrift in our discussion, but definitely warrants a lot more thought and treatment uh, uh, in the story. And because of the short time frame in the in the story description and and our workshop, uh, you may have, have gone to great depths on that. I just want to affirm that that's something that you know even early on, you know, thoughts and memories of her, her brother being unbidden or seeing him, uh, in a crowd and then having him vanish, let the reader know there's something funky foreshadow that, uh, uh, a little bit. And I love Justin's idea that having him there makes her an uber powerful spirit mage, which is badass. That's just awesome. Yeah. I have um, not thought of that. She just kind of let him go in that. Cause that was what happened in the short story, yeah. but I'm liking this idea of her holding on to that because yeah. it also has some great conflict moments because i do know what happens to spirits after death and if uh-huh. if their souls or i do know what happens and uh, if their spirit stays and their soul does not there's some bad stuff that goes bad mode so i like that conflict that Com- she can hold on to i i dig it complications for book two fabulous yeah um and um ugh, just just the uh, uh attention to the the commerce be- because the societal and the cultural strata uh, play such a strong part uh, in the con the central conflict of the story. Every opportunity you can have to not not tell us about it, but demonstrate it. Uh, uh, opportunities for characters to come up against those walls and how they are beat down by them or how they overcome them. Uh, I can see a very rich and robust black market uh, being in here. I know you discussed that, so so definitely that's definitely on the right track. Um, God, there was so much to talk about that we didn't get a chance to, but that's the sign of an incredible story, Lauren. So girl, go to it, go to it. And thank you, Lauren, so much. This, this has been an amazing, uh, workshop and an, and an exploration. And we really appreciate you bringing your story to the table. I really appreciate all the, all the help. And I know I, I was kind of like stuck on a, f- a few things just going, no, I don't want to change it, but you guys forced me to break down some of those (laughs) ways of thinking and um i appreciate it and i really like some of the stuff that i'm uh i'm i'm i've got in my head now because of all of you and i very much appreciate your input and your ideas and i am uber excited now to continue (laughs) and to to hop into this story then our work is done here now lauren here's the deal when you write this thing and you publish it however it comes out of the world ebook podcast or or a big fat advance from one of the big six uh, uh, or actually, I guess Big Five. Now that Penguin and Random big House five. are merging, yes. yes, the Big Five. Um, uh, uh, come back, tell us, and we will knight you. We will make you a knight of the Round Table. Awesome. Yes. So I can so be cool. a pen dragon lady and a knight of the Round exactly. Table. Exactly. Oh my, I mean, <laughs> my 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 world will be complete. Girl, you've got to do that. It's your destiny, child. Two Indeed. sides of the same coin, or whatever they say in Merlin. <laughs> yes, that's marvelous, delicious. There's the, the synchronicity there is too delicious to pass up, so write it. Uh, Alethea, thank you. Alethea Contis, thank you so much. Uh, you, you, you've brought such a wonderful sense to the discussion, uh, uh, not only of... Are you of- kidding? I'm an amateur. You guys are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, has opened my eyes to an entire new world of, of thought. See, there we go. Exactly. Right on. Collaborative storytelling, baby. We can, we can, we can make it a whole new world. 
but regardless, your, your, your playfulness, your experience, your, your, your insights into uh, a character and story, th- this doesn't happen with just two people. We got to have a third and you have been marvelous uh, as our guest host this, this episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Justin, dude, I know you love the brainstorming episodes of the Dead Robot Society. Thank you so much for coming and playing in our sandbox for a while. This was awesome. I'm so glad you you asked to have me on. It was just, I I love doing this. This is very cool. All I got to do is get Terry Mixon on now as a co-host, and I've got I've, I will have gone through not only interviewing and having all of you on the show, but also having all of you as co-hosts. That's my evil plan. Yes, that'll have to be the filthy episode, though. Yes, that'll that'll be a, that'll be a, that'll be a curmudgeon episode. And dear friends, uh, as long as we're slinging gratitude around like like the Grinch slinging Christmas presents at the end of the Grinch who stole Christmas, thank you. Uh, I, we hope that your Christmas was awesome, and we hope that this episode was a gift, our gift to you, and that it was brightly wrapped and filled with goodness. Please let the world know that the roundtable is out there. Uh, uh, we, we, we have endorsements from Aletheia Contest now, so you know we're rocking. Woohoo! Uh, woohoo! So, <laughs> can, I know you've got ideas about what Lauren's story uh, uh, is and can be and might be. Feel free to continue that discussion in the comment thread. So many of you have, and we're so grateful that you do. The discussion continues there. By all means, uh, uh, infuse your thoughts and inspirations and let Oren be... Let Oren? No. Let Lauren be inspired (laughs) by them. Um, Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. And uh, uh, an email is always welcome at the table at roundtablepodcast.com. Now, we're all sitting here coated in pixie dust, uh, uh, <laughs> getting ready to swill some, some honey mead and count ourselves uh, champions of the workshop experience. But dear friends, this is just one chapter in the ongoing saga that is the round table. In just a few days, it starts all over again. Another awesome guest host returns to the big chair. More courageous and creative. I'm actually going to coin a word. I'm going to say uh, courageous. What, <laughs> what do you think? Courageous? <laughs> Or, Trademark. Or, Go for it. or corrative, one of the two, I'm not sure. Guest writer to offer up a tale for our tender menstruations uh, and accelerating into the realm of literary gold. So, so friends, do return because it just keeps coming. Uh, and that's, you know, just a few days away between now and then. Justin, what do you think, man? What, 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 what should our listeners be doing? Go write. Yes! Hell yes! Go write! Go, go, go play with those toys and be inspired by them. And as I always say, you find what you're looking for. So don't look for blah. Don't look for, oh, why? Look for, yeah, baby! Look for awesome. Look for top shelf and you will find it. We will see you in just a couple of days. Until then, stay cool, be frosty, be awesome. We will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyrighted 2012 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, 
please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or just send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.